And uh, I hope that you've got your Bible with you and are eager to take that Bible and study with us tonight as we talk about things that are serious that have to do with serving God and going to heaven. Uh, we believe what we believe and why we practice what we practice and why we don't do certain things. These are fundamental studies of the question of why. Why do we believe what we believe and why do we practice or why do we not believe certain things or why do we not practice certain things or what we're seeking to answer in our studies this weekend. On Thursday we began with why we believe it makes a difference what one believes in religion. And then last evening we talked about why we believe that Jesus was raised from the dead and tonight we're going to talk about why we believe there is just one church. Tomorrow we're going to talk in three lessons about the question of why. We're going to talk about why we believe miracles have ceased. We'll follow that with a study of why we believe hell is real and eternal. And then we'll close tomorrow evening by talking about why we do not believe once saved, always saved. So let's talk tonight about why we believe there is just one church. Why do we believe that? Well, let's begin by noticing this. Let's notice a very common concept, very similar to what we talked about on uh, Thursday evening as we began. A very common concept is that it makes no difference what one believes or practices in religion. What that says is it makes no difference which church you are a part of. And so that says there's more than one church that's acceptable and pleasing to God. The common concept is that all churches are good. That is, if people are religious, they like to see other people religious, and it really doesn't matter what you believe or practice, all churches are good and are doing good. And the idea is that one church is just as good as another church. One denomination is as good as another denomination, someone might say. And there's telling us that which church you attend or are part of is just a matter of a personal choice. You choose this church, you like their doctrine and their practice, but someone else chooses a different church, because they like their doctrine and their practice. It's a very common concept. So let's begin by raising the question, what is the church? When we talk about the church, what is the church? So let's start in Acts chapter 8 and verse 3. And let's notice in Acts 8 and verse 3 that the church is people. The church is not the building. It's not where we meet. It's not a location. But the church is people. Notice in Acts 8 in verse 3, as for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women and committing them to prison. What he was doing to men and women is what he was doing to the church. What he did to the church, he had to do that by doing it to men and women. In other words, the, any people, it's people who are in a saved relationship with God. Some have the idea that you become saved and then you might want to identify or you might join the church. You might join the church of your choice. That's not taught in the New Testament. What the New Testament teaches is that the church is those who are saved. And let's establish this from a number of avenues. Let's start with Acts 2 and in verse 47. The text says in Acts 2, 47, the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. So those who were saved were added to the church. Those added to the church were those who were saved. They are one and the same. And we see that same concept again in Ephesians 2.16, that he might reconcile both unto God in one body. Those in the body are those who are reconciled. Those who are reconciled are those who are in the body. In Ephesians chapter 5, same book, chapter 5, verse 23, we read there in that text that Christ is the Savior of the body. 
Those whom he promises to save are those in the body. Those in the body and the saved are one and the same. But I also want to suggest to you the terms of entrance are the same. If you were to get out a piece of paper and you say, I'm going to peruse through the New Testament and I'm going to list everything it tells me to do to be saved. And you make that list. And then you go through your New Testament and you say, I'm going to list the conditions that one must meet in order to enter the church of the Lord. And you make that list, they'll be the same identical list. The terms of entrance are the same. What you do to be saved, what you do to enter the church of the Lord are one and the same. But let's go even further. Let's take a look at Acts chapter 11. And I encourage you to get your Bible and turn there. And if you're so disposed to mark things in your Bible, you may want to look at some things and underline some things. Here we see a definition of the church found in the context of Acts chapter 11. I want you to notice in Acts chapter 11, beginning at verse 19, that there were those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen. And they traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word of God to no one but the Jews only. And notice what happens. They go preach and they hear the preaching of the Lord Jesus. Now let's go further. But some of them were men of Cyprus and Cyrene. When they came to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus. Someone said, what we need Singing is the Lord Jesus. I say amen to that. It's exactly what we need to be preaching. So here were some who heard the preaching of the Lord Jesus. What happened as a result of hearing the preaching of the Lord Jesus? Well, now look with me at verse, uh, verse 21, or verse 20. 21, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. There was something about the preaching of Jesus that caused them to believe and turn to the Lord. Now we can stop at that point and you would have to conclude, here are people who heard the preaching of Jesus and they now turn to the Lord. They're in a saved relationship. They believed and turned to the Lord. But that's not all the text says. Let's go a little bit further. Look at verse 22. The news of these things came to the ears of the church at Jerusalem and they sent Barnabas that he should go as far as Antioch. And when he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad. Have you ever seen the grace of God? Have you ever had somebody reaching about, let me show you, I've got some grace right here. Here's the, no, you don't see literally the grace. You see the effect of grace or you see that people had received the grace of God. You see, on the preaching of the Lord Jesus, people believed and turned to the Lord and had received the grace of God. That's describing people who are in a saved relationship. But let's go even further. Let's go further now. Notice that they had seen the grace of God. He was glad and was in, encouraged them all that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. For he was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And so it was that for a whole year they assembled, now watch this, with the church. What church? Where does you tell me where you see anything? Up? You go back starting in Acts chapter 1 and read all the way up to this point in Acts 11 and tell me where you see anything about a church at Antioch. Where would you ever see anything about a church at Antioch? Where did that church come from? I'll tell you where that church came from. The preaching of the Lord Jesus called them, caused them to believe and turn to the Lord. They received the grace of God, and that comprised the church at Antioch. That's where the church came from. Do you see a definition of church in this context? But we're still not through. Look at verse 26 again. They assembled with the church and taught a great many people and the disciples. Who are the disciples? 
Those that heard the preaching of Jesus, believed and turned to the Lord, received the grace of God. That's the same as the people in the church. What about the disciples? They were called Christians first at Antioch. You see what I've learned from this context? Those in the church are the same ones who are Christians. Those who are Christians are the same ones who are disciples. They're the same people who received the grace of God and believed and turned to the Lord. I might ask someone, are you a Christian? Another way of asking that, are you a disciple? I might ask it another way, have you received the grace of God? I might ask it another way and say, have you believed and turned to the Lord? Or I might ask it another way and say, have you entered the church of the Lord? Same question, isn't it? See, this context just told me the same thing I learned from all these other passages is the church is those who are saved. But we're still not through. Let's go further. The term church, as you find it in passages like we've been looking at, like Acts 2, 47, the Lord added to the church, comes from this word ekklesia. You say, I don't know anything about Greek. You probably know more than you think you know. Because this is a compound word, ek, meaning out of. It's the same word from which we get our word exit that I see on the sign back here. It's out of, to go out. Klesia meaning to call. And so it has reference to those who have been called out. In Acts 19, it re refers to an assembly. Those who are called out for a common, Thessalonians 2, 14. But the Bible talks about us being called by the gospel, 2 Thessalonians 2.14. We have been called out of sin and to salvation, Ephesians chapter 2. The whole chapter is devoted to that concept. And in 1 Peter 2 and in verse 9, we've been called out of darkness into light. That harmonizes with what we've seen elsewhere. The church is people who indeed are saved. But let's go even a step further. We're still trying to define the church. And when we talk about there's one church, it's important for us to understand the church is those who are saved. Well, let's go to 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15, and we're going to see the church is the same as the family of God. Those who are in the church are the children of God. Those who are the children of God are those who are in the church. Notice what Paul said, that if I be, am delayed, I write to you that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, that is the family of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of truth. See, the church of God and the family of God, the house of God are one and the same people. So when someone says, I'm a, I'm a child of God, that's really saying I'm in the church of the Lord. When someone said, I'm in the church, you're saying I'm a child of God. That's one and the same. So now with that in mind, let's raise this question. Why do we believe there's only one church? Why do we believe there's only one church? Well, here's the first reason I want to say. That Jesus only promised one church. We believe there's just one church because Jesus only promised one. Let's open our Bibles now to Mark, Matthew chapter 16 and in verse 18. The Lord said to Peter, and I say to you, you are Peter. He shall not prevail against it. Notice the term church is singular in number. Jesus did not say, upon this rock I will build my churches, but upon this rock I will build my church. Singular in number. When Jesus made a promise about building a church, he only promised to build one. Let's go a step further with reference to that and talk about some Old Testament prophecies. New Testament as well, that every prophecy of the church or the kingdom only mentioned one. It was not kingdoms, it was the kingdom. Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, made a promise and a prophecy of the Lord's house. Not the Lord's houses, but the Lord's house. Only one. Well, let's go again. 
This time in Daniel 2.44, remember there was a prophecy as the king's dream was being interpreted that there would be a kingdom to be established. Not kingdoms, but a kingdom, singular in number. Let's go again. This time to Daniel 7, when the Son of Man ascended to the Ancient of Days, that is the Son of God ascended to the Father in heaven and received a kingdom, singular, not kingdoms, but a kingdom. So notice another prophecy, Micah 4, 1 parallel to Isaiah chapter 2, again the Lord's house, not the Lord's houses, plural. In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus was preaching the gospel of the kingdom, not the kingdoms, but the gospel of the kingdom. Mark 9 and verse 1, Jesus prophesied the establishment of his kingdom, that his kingdom would come with power. Not his kingdoms, but his kingdom would come with power. There was only one that was prophesied. Well, last of all, on that list, Matthew chapter 6 and in verse 10, the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray was, Thy kingdom come. Not thy kingdoms, plural, but thy kingdom come. So why do we believe there's only one church? Because Jesus only promised one. Here's a second reason we believe that, and that is because the Bible says there is just one. The Bible says there is just one. Now, if you're so disposed to mark things in your Bible, you might get your Bible and turn to Ephesians chapter 4 and notice in verse 4. Let's go to the book of Ephesians chapter 4 and let's notice verse 4. The text says there is one body. How many bodies are there, Paul? Paul said there's one. You said, well, I thought we were talking about the church. Well, let's let the same writer, same book, define what he means by body. So let's go to chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body. You see what he just said? He said there is one body. Same writer, same book said the body is the church. So the conclusion is there is one church. Jesus only promised one. Paul said there is just one. That's why we believe there's just one. It's because Jesus only promised one. Paul said there is just one. There is one body. There are a number of references through the New Testament to the one body. For example, in Romans chapter 12, verses 4 and 5, we are members in one body. Again, not bodies, but one. Let's go again. Notice in 1 Corinthians 10 and 17 that we are of one bread and one body. Again, not plural, but one body. 1 Corinthians 12 and in verse 12, we're members of one body. So again and again, the writers are saying there is one body, that he might reconcile both unto God in one body. We started with that passage a little earlier, Ephesians 2 and in 16. Colossians 3, 15 said we're called in one body. And so what we're learning from that is there's only one. Paul said there is one body. Every reference to the body, if there is a number given, mentions one body. So Jesus only promised one. Paul said there is just one. Here's a third reason we believe that. The Bible is silent about churches, plural. The point and conclude our lesson, if we just had those three points, Jesus only promised one. Paul said there is just one, and the Bible is silent about anything else. But let's consider this point. There is no passage in all of the New Testament 
that says anything about churches or denominations. There's nothing about that in the New Testament. Now, if the Bible is silent, then it's not the will of God. You say, how do you know that? Well, look at 1 Peter 4, 11. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God, the sayings of God. In other words, I have the obligation, if I'm going to say something, and in my teaching, in my preaching about the Word of God, that I need to cite the Word of God and give evidence and proof of that. So if I'm going to stand before you and say there is one body, I'm going to cite a passage that says there is one body. But if I'm going to stand before you and say, you know what, one church is as good as another, I need to find the passage that says that, and I can't find one. The Bible is silent about that. I cannot cite the will of God. Hebrews 7, 14 tells us that our Lord sprang out of Judah. That is, Jesus came from the tribe of Judah. Of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood. That's why Jesus couldn't be a priest on earth, chapter 8, because he was not of that tribe. What did God say about those of the tribe of Judah being priests? He said nothing. So if the Bible is silent, it's not the will of God. 2 Timothy 4, 1 and 2, Paul tells Timothy to preach the word. So if I'm going to stand before you and tell you one church is as good as another, there are multiple churches all acceptable to God, I need to find where the word of God so teaches that. If there are churches in the Bible, one being as good as another, I raise the question, where is the passage that so teaches? And we'd be glad to take a look at that passage. But we're answering the question, why do we believe there is just one church? We believe there's just one church because it makes a difference what one believes. Now, I'm not going to rehash what we studied on Thursday night, but I do want to lace that into this study where on Thursday night we talked about this. We looked at this very chart Thursday evening. And that is that there is an objective standard. Those of you who were here remember that study. That there is an objective standard. The word is written of God, that uh, Corinthians 4 objective, but an objective standard. We talked about what is written of God, 2 uh, Corinthians 4 and 3, 13. The oracles of God, the commandments of God, the word of God, the inspired scriptures. All of those are synonymous expressions. That if there is such a thing as a fixed standard, then it makes a difference what one believes in religion. And coming from the other side, if it makes a difference what one believes, there has to be a fixed or an objective standard. So we believe there's one church because it does make a difference what you believe. Churches are contradictory in their teaching. If they're teaching the same thing and practicing the same, they're the same church. But if they're teaching contradictory things, then one church is not as good as another church because it makes a difference what one believes in religion. We also noted from 2 Timothy or 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, 10 through 12, that those who are deceived and believe a lie would perish. In contrast, those who believe the truth would be saved. It makes a difference what one believes in religion. Now follow this carefully as we lace this in with our study tonight. If it makes a difference what one believes in religion, then one church cannot be as good as another church. If it makes a difference what one believes and practices, the church must follow the pattern, Hebrews 8 and 5. There is a pattern to follow. And so if a church is not following the pattern of God, it's not as good as the church that does follow the pattern. If it makes a difference what one believes and practices, a church must practice what is found in the doctrine of Christ, 2 John verse 9. 
Those who abide in the doctrine of Christ have God, but those who go beyond the doctrine of Christ have neither the Father nor the Son. But let's go further. Let's consider that we believe there is only one church because division is wrong. Because division is wrong. Jesus prayed for unity. Let's go to John chapter 17. You say, what does division have to do with what we're talking about? The very idea, and we'll say more about this in just a moment, the very idea of denominationalism suggests that God's people are divided doctrinally and that we teach and practice different things, contradictory things, and it's all acceptable unto God. But I want us to see that Jesus prayed for unity. Look at John chapter 17, 20 and 21. He said, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's me and you. See, I believe on the Lord through the words of the apostles, and so do you. What do you pray about us? That they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be one in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus prayed that those who believe on the Lord would be united just as the Father and the Son are united. Now, did the Father teach one thing on salvation and the Son teach the opposite? Did the Father say one thing on the deity of Christ and the Son say something just the opposite? Did the Father say one thing on creation and the Son say something opposite of that? Or were they united? That they may be one as we are one. So Jesus prayed for unity. Paul condemned division. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and notice in verse 10. Paul writes to a church that is divided. Some are saying, I'm of Paul. Others are saying, no, I'm of Apollos. Some are saying, I'm of Cephas. Some are saying, I'm of Christ. A whole parcel of problems are appearing throughout the book. But I want you to notice, beginning at verse 10, I plead with you, brethren, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same things, and there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together. Now notice this, in the same mind and in the same judgment. We mean same mind and same judgment. The same standard and the same conclusion from the standard. So how'd you come to that? The same mind, the having the mind of Christ, the revelation of Christ. The same word that is translated judgment is found in Acts 20 and verse 3 where it is translated they decided. I think the text is talking about the same standard and the same conclusion from that standard. So what I'm learning from that, division was condemned, and then how you obtain a unity is found in that same text. Furthermore, division is contrary to the doctrine. Mark those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine and avoid them, Romans 16, 17, and 18. Now let me establish with you that denominationalism, the very concept of denominationalism, is division. The very thing that we just saw condemned in the New Testament. Denominationalism is division. Let's define the word denomination. The American Heritage Dictionary says the word denomination means the act of naming a name, a designation, the name of a class or group or classification. This is a term that some who are older remember the day when the term denomination was used with reference to banking. You'd go to the bank and you put your check down and want to cash the check and they might ask you, what denomination? If they ask you that today, some would think they're asking about my religion and that's none of their business. <laughs> that wasn't what they were asking. It wasn't a religious question. They may ask you today, do you want that in large bills or small bills? 
But what they were asking is, what division of money did you want that in? So let's just suppose you go to the bank with a $100 check and you want to cash that. What they're asking when they say, what denomination, they're wanting to know, do you want that in ones, fives, tens, twenties, fifties, or a hundred? How do you want that? Now, there were three things implied as that term was used with reference to banking. Watch this carefully. The first thing that was implied was that there is division in money, that money is divided into various denominations, various classifications. We have ones and fives and tens and twenties, fifties and hundreds. Now, let's just suppose that there was no division and the only form of currency we had was $1 bills. That's the only thing we have. And you put your check down and they say, what denomination do you want? Your answer would be, well, duh, there's only one. What else can I get? Just $1 bills. That's all I can get. You see, the very fact they use that term with reference to money means money is divided. So it implied, number one, division. Secondly, it implied that one is as good as another. I don't mean a $1 bill and a $100 bill are the same, but the classifications are good. One is as good as another. Which is more valuable, 100 ones or 1 100? They're the same, aren't they? 250s or 520s? Which do you want? One's just as good as another. All right, the third thing was implied. There were no wrong choices. In other words, you put your check down and you say, I want that in $20 bills. The bank, bank vice president doesn't come over and condemn you and say, you do that again and we'll have you driven out of this bank and hauled out of here. You can't do that. There are no wrong choices. If you want 20s, you get 20s. If you want 1s, you get 1s. If you want a $100 bill, whatever you want, there are no wrong choices. All right, those same three things apply when it comes to religion. When people talk about what denomination are you, what they're meaning by that is that here is the concept of denominationalism. This is not biblical concept. This is the religious world's concept. And the idea is this larger shaded area represents the saved God's people. And that God's people are divided into various segments, classifications, or flavors, if you please. So some of God's people choose to be Adventist. And other of God's people then decide, I think I want to be a Nazarene. I want to subscribe to their creed. Someone else said, no, I want to be a Catholic and someone else a Presbyterian and the Church of God and the Church of Christ and the Baptist and the Methodist and on to their thousands and thousands of various denominations. Those same three things are implied. When we talk about denominations, when someone asks, what denomination are you? They are suggesting God's people are, number one, divided that all of these are God's people. All of these are saved people. They're divided, and it implies, secondly, one is just as good as another. And thirdly, there are no wrong choices. So that if I decide I want to be a Baptist, then that's fine. But if I say, you know what, I don't want to be a Baptist anymore. I want to be a Presbyterian. And then I could leave that and become an Adventist, and one's just as good as another. There are no wrong choices. That is the idea of denominationalism. Now, why is denominationalism wrong? Let me list four reasons and watch them carefully. They're so simple, you may miss them. Here they are. Number one, what's wrong with that concept that we just saw? It's simply not found in the Bible. You won't find that picture in the Bible. You won't find that description given in the Bible. 1 Peter 4.11 says, If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. It's just not there. There is no oracle or saying of God that describes denominationalism. 
Secondly, what's wrong with it? It's contrary to those, those pleas for unity. Being one as we are one. You see, the Presbyterians and the free wills don't teach the same thing. They're not, they're not united at all. They're teaching opposite doctrines. And that's just a sampling. Here over here is a, a group that says Jesus is not the Son of God and another group that says He is the Son of God. So it's contrary to the concept of unity or the plea for unity as we just saw in John, 20 and 1 Corinthians, John 17, 20 and 1 Corinthians 1 and 10. Thirdly, it's wrong because it makes a difference what you believe in religion of that question. And fourthly, it is contrary to the idea of there being one body. Ephesians 4 and in verse 4. So that's the concept of denominationalism being wrong. Now I want to list some things and I want you to watch carefully here as we talk about there is a difference in three things. First of all, let's talk about denominationalism that we just described. What is the idea of denominationalism? The idea of denominationalism is that God's people are divided into various sects, S-E-C-T-S. And to be in that denomination, you must subscribe to that creed. In other words, you decide, I want to be a Methodist. Well, that means that if you're really going to be a Methodist, you subscribe to their creed and you believe what's in that creed and you become a Methodist. Well, then you say, well, no, I don't think I want to do that. I want to be a Baptist. It means you subscribe to their creed and you believe Baptist doctrine or the Presbyterian creed or the Catholic creed, whatever the, make, the creed may be. That's the idea of denominationalism. And so you're identifying, if you're in that church, I am a part of that denomination. Non-denominational is something we need to think about, and that is when the church is not part of any denomination, the church is singular. That's the picture we've been giving from the New Testament of the Lord's church. It is non-denominational. There's another term I want you to be familiar with, and that is what may be referred to as interdenominational. What's that all about? That's the idea where we accept anybody and everybody and all believe different things, but we all worship together. I want you, and, and why do I need to make that distinction? Because many of the so-called mega churches today, you have your Baptist church over here, you have your Methodist church, your Adventist church, you have your Catholic church, your Presbyterian church, and then you have this community church or a mega church. And they say, we're non-denominational. And that's attractive to people. Oh, I, I don't like this idea of denominationalism. I want to be a part of a non-denominational church. They're mislabeling that. They're not non-denominational. They're interdenominational, meaning we'll accept anything and everything. And so when some church says we're non-denominational, you say, well, that's great because we're not, I'm opposed to denominationalism. What they probably are saying really is we are interdenominational. We'll accept anything. You don't have to believe. I believe baptism is sin. You can believe not. You believe Jesus is the Son of God or you don't have to or the Bible is inspired or it's not. It doesn't matter. You just come and you'll be a part of us. That's interdenominational. We'll accept anything and everything. The Lord's church is not interdenominational. It's not denominational. It is not a part of a larger group. It is the Lord's church and it is singular. So what have we seen in our study tonight? Why do we believe there is only one church? And here are the reasons that we've given. Jesus only promised one. He said, I'll build my church. The Bible says there is just one. Paul said there is one body. The Bible is silent about other churches. And it makes a difference what one believes. And then the Bible says division indeed 
is wrong. Now, what does all that mean to us now? You say, I've, I've got that. I, I, I saw those five points and I got it and I get it. What does that mean to me? I think sometimes we stop short here and just, we, we teach that concept and then leave that for someone to figure out what that means. What does that mean? It means two basic things. That if you're not in the Lord's church, that one church you read about in the New Testament, then you need to enter that church in order to be saved. If there is just one church and the church is those who are saved, you must be in that church in order to be saved. That's what that means. Secondly, it means that I must leave and renounce denominationalism. We're not here tonight inviting someone to leave one church to join another church. We're not inviting someone like maybe trying to sell you a new car. Why don't you get rid of your car and get you a newer one? Different. But what we're trying to get you to see is what's wrong with denominationalism. Renounce what you see to be error and become a part of the church that you read about in the pages of the New Testament. Now, obviously, we haven't been thorough tonight in studying what are the identifying characteristics of the Lord's church. That can be done in other studies. There are people here that will study with you if you want to study that further in more detail. And that kind of study can be gained it readily just by contacting some of the brethren here. They'd be glad to do that. There may be one or more present this evening who's not a member of the body of Christ. Not a Christian, not a child of God. That's asking the same question, isn't it? If I ask you, are you a Christian? I could ask you, are you a disciple? Have you believed and turned to the Lord? Have you received the grace of God? Are you a member of the Lord's church? Those are the same question. If you haven't obeyed the gospel, would you do so tonight? Would you come believing that Jesus is the Christ? The Son of the living God, would you repent of your sins, acknowledge your faith, and be buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins? If you're subject in any way, would you come while together we stand and while we sing?